Psalm 2. I think it'll profit you if you keep it open there this morning. So we come to the Psalms today. The word means uh, words set to notes, or sometimes it translates twangings upon the strings. When I was a young man reading the Psalms, I used to say to myself, what is this guy groaning about all day long? Now that I've grown older, I say, how articulate is this man's longings and groanings for the Lord? It's been said that there's a psalm for every sigh. There's a psalm for old age, a psalm for youth, psalms for peace. There's psalms of praise, psalms of gratitude, psalms of penitence. And whatever mood you're in in life, you can find a psalm that fits your moods and expresses yourself to the Lord. Sometimes when the pipe organ plays and I'm grieving, it will hit a note and that chord resonates within me. And it's evocative. And I say, Lord, that's how I feel. I give you that. I give you that. And the Psalms, like a great organ, the king of instruments, can do that for us as we worship. Did you know that Jesus quoted from much of the Old Testament? But the book he quoted from more often than any other was the book of Psalms. And I've been reading it lately to, to see what light there is for the living of these days. One other factoid that intrigues me. Of all human literature, the book that has inspired more classical music than any other is the book of Psalms. Many of them have been put to great symphonic tonal poems. So I encourage you to read the Psalms. Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted, planted by the rivers of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. And now Psalm 2. Why? Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let's burst their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy kill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. The Lord said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. But how blessed are those who take refuge in him. Lord, we come this morning to look into your word and find always much to our deep surprise 
that your word has a very real way of looking into us. See us and know us, Lord. Let us hear your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the American Declaration of Independence, we are promised life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As far as I know, we're the only government in the world that promises our people the pursuit of happiness. What you've got in the United States today is a cultural scramble to pursue happiness. Where is it? Is it in marriage or is it in singleness? How much money do you need to be happy? Will a new car make you happy, a bigger, a better house or a smaller house? Is it in that trip or in your job or in three kids in a career? The Psalms have much to say here. It begins with the word blessed. The Psalms begin with that simple word blessed, which means happy or the state of utmost bliss. Happy is the man who. And Psalm 1 tells us there are two types of people. There are those that are happy and those that are unhappy. Psalm 1 mentions vertical people, people who live life with reference to God. They meditate on his word day and night, and they're like an evergreen tree, and the leaf doesn't wither. If you look at the um, trees of life that grow by the river in the latter parts of the book of Revelation, it says the leaves that fall from these trees are for the healing of the nations. Isn't it wonderful to think that there are leaves that can fall from us that are for the healing of other people? That visit you make to the hospital, your prayers, perhaps a hymn you write, a sermon you teach, um, a Bible verse you teach students in an elementary class. The kindness, the deeds of ministry that we show can be for the healing of other people. This is the vertical or the happy person in today's world, the Bible says, who lives for God and lives for ministry to those around him. The horizontal person, though, is godless. They live life without reference to God or anybody around him. Um, I was, a few Sundays ago, approached by a woman that wanted to talk. And I said, I don't have any time this week, just tonight. And she said, well, I can't come tonight. And then I said, well, I can't talk to you then. What's so important with your grievous need that you can't come out sometime tonight? And she said, well, Desperate Housewives is on. And there's a character that has a problem like I have a problem. And I keep thinking if I watch her long enough that she's going to work that issue out. And by following her, I can work that issue out in my own life. Now, this is the horizontal person that Psalm 1 talks about. Notice the cadence here. They walk in the counsel of the ungodly. They stand in the seat of the scornful. They sit in the seat of those that don't know the Lord. There's a progressive getting comfortable here. They start off walking, and then they stand still, and finally they're seated comfortably with the world around them. Driving down here, we stopped at Smithville Barbecue. Is that a ritual with you like it is for us? And they had a picture of the young beetles on the wall. I was 14 when they first came to this country. And their fresh faces on the wall were wonderful to look at, so youthful. And I remember their music, I want to hold your hand. What a, what a beautiful, simple lyric. But I watched the Beatles disintegrate before my eyes. Their musics became convoluted and sometimes satanic or wicked. They went into the drug culture, the Eastern religion. Uh, they began to divorce their spouses. They began to take drugs, acid hits, and trips. 
One of them was murdered on the streets of New York. And here, still another one has just turned 65. And um, there's a divorce in the headlines, too. These men's lives disintegrated. They didn't live vertically. They lived horizontally. In fact, one of the songs they wrote, I think, is emblematic of them. Do you remember the song, uh, Nowhere Man? He's a real nowhere man sitting in his nowhere land making all his decisions for nowhere people. And it was written about LBJ and his Vietnam uh, policies. And they called him a nowhere man. They've become nowhere men themselves. Their lives disintegrating. Look at what the psalmist says about them. As they walk and stand and sit increasingly with the wicked, what happens to them? Their lives are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. And we know people like that, don't we? Look at Britney Spears, the self-destructive habits that are in her life. She's had her 20 minutes of fame, her youth is spent. I don't know what's in that girl's head, but it's not the Lord Jesus Christ. You see their lives disintegrating very much before us. So the psalm opens with the word happy. Some are happy and some aren't. Now let's look at Psalm 2 if we can. Basically, Psalm 2 gives us three worldviews. The nations are raging against the Lord. The second view, God is in his heaven, laughing, secure, and comfortable. And the third view is God's sons and daughters serving the Lord. And what's the conclusion? Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. There's that word blessed again. It occurs at the beginning of Psalm 1, but at the ending of Psalm 2. Happy are those who know how to take refuge in the Lord. Now let's see if we can go deeper. Psalm 2 begins by asking two questions. Why? Why do the nations rage? Now, nations is talking about big groups of people, political groups. Why do the nations rage? In the Hebrew, the word rage means a stormy sea that's restless, that roars and crashes against the shore. Why are nation states roaring and crashing like the restless tides? against the shores of history. In other words, why is there so much international conflict? Now, the psalmist is trying to relate his faith in God to foreign policy. And I don't know about you, but I find that highly refreshing as a theologian. Most of us are concerned about our personal health, our wealth, our children. But he's trying to relate to bigger than his personal struggles the struggles of humanity in the world around him. He's concerned about nuclear proliferation. He's concerned about pollution or war or the genocide in the Darfur region of Africa. Now here the psalmist is a Jewish concerned with daily news. Egypt is rearming. Assyria seems to be rattling their saber. Israel seems weak and defenseless. He's worried. He's afraid. He's unhappy. And he's looking to the Lord for refuge in a troubled world, as we certainly are doing today. Today's a little different. Don't we often think, now, if we can just get the next election right, if the right people get put in office in Washington and in Raleigh or Columbia, and if we can just extract ourselves with dignity from Iraq, and if we can bring North Korea to the negotiating table and Iran to the negotiating table so that these nukes don't proliferate, then we can relax. Things will be okay. We can have a measure of happiness. So he opens asking the question that many of us ask in these terrible days of history. Why? Why is there so much international conflict? Why do the nations rage? Now, the second question he asks is this. Why do the people plot in vain? 
Now, he's talking about nation-states in the first question. He's talking about individuals in the second question. Why do peoples plot in vain? The word vanity means emptily or meaninglessly. Why is there so much individual confusion in people's lives? Now, if you're looking for ministry, let me tell you what the growth industry is going to be in Christendom in the Western world. Christian counseling. I was out in Denver Seminary as a pastor in residence a few years ago. And I was shocked to find out that of four or five hundred divinity students, 90% of them were studying to be counselors. Only 10% or less were studying to be missionaries or ministers of the word. Now, why is that so? Well, being a minister is very difficult. It's difficult to please people. It's difficult to survive politically. It's difficult for a lot of reasons. But everybody knows what a counselor does. He makes an appointment with you. You show up. He gives you 50 minutes on the hour. He listens reflectively. Sometimes he gives you guidance or advice. You pay a sum of money and you're on your way. And he's pleased you. But what's a pastor's job? People have all kinds of grandiose views of what it is. Now, what do you get in the counseling chambers today? Well, you get people who are thinking of getting married for the fifth time that don't have a clue why their first four marriages failed. You get a man who's been fired from his sixth job in three years, and this one's not looking very good itself. You get someone who tells you they're so depressed they feel like they're breathing cement. Someone who's struggling with the self-esteem so low it's down around their socks. Or you get a new ager whom Shirley McCain told was a god, and all she had to do was look inside herself and find that goddess. And she looked inside and found herself empty. And she's struggling with meaning in life. Where do you begin in dealing with people, individuals, who are full of such vanities, who are struggling with such empty lifestyles? Well, naturally, you begin with conversion. But there's a problem with conversion. If you have a saved fool, or rather, let's go back and you have a foolish person, you can do something about their salvation when they trust Christ. And they can become saved in the twinkling of an eye. But what do you have after they're saved? A saved fool. God can do something about the salvation quickly, but the sanctification process is often three steps forward and two steps backwards. And it takes years. So how do you begin with a foolish person who's become converted, but they have no schooling, no theology, no friends or family, they're deep in debt, they don't know how to budget, they don't have any support group. And that's where Christian counseling is becoming exciting to a lot of young people. And they want to serve the church in that way. I just remind you, as I reminded the Divinity School, that God chose to save man through the foolishness of what we preach. And the pastorate is God's method of redemption, not Christian counseling. There's room for both, but we need pastors desperately in our world today. Well, the psalmist begins with two questions that probably have formed in your mind and my heart over these eons. Why do the nations rage, and why is there so much individual confusion? Now in verses 2 and 3, the psalmist clearly lists the causes for all this raging and emptiness. One, he says, there's leadership in society against God. Listen to the psalmist. The kings take their stand against God and against his anointed. And there you have it, blame it on the politicians, right? 
Blame it on Washington. All our problems are their problems, correct? No, in a democracy, we need to blame ourselves because we vote these people in. And we get the kind of leadership in a democracy that we really deserve. And this against God in our culture really starts with ourselves before it gets to the political arena. We're against God in our schools. We're against God in our courts. We're against God in our business dealings. We become against God in many of our churches. And before that, we were against God in our individual lives. And we elect people who are going to be against God and send them to Washington. And we have a culture that's increasingly antagonistic towards the Lord. The second reason the psalmist delineates for this raging confusion in our culture, there's antagonism against the lordship of Jesus Christ. The text says, rulers take counsel against the Lord. Now, the word Lord is Jehovah here in the text, the self-existent one, the eternal of the ages, the holy and righteous judge. A few years ago, I was sitting with my back against Duke Cathedral waiting for an appointment to show up. And it happened to be Gay Pride Day on Duke University's campus. And students were wearing a particular green T-shirt. And on the front it said, Gay, with a question mark. And on the back of every T-shirt it says, Fine with me. And I watched hundreds of these green T-shirts go by. And I'm usually a quiet person. But there was anger forming within me. And I stood up and I walked over to a big guy about my size who looked like he could take it. And I said, Excuse me, what... What's the meaning of this T-shirt? It seems that, that um, people have T-shirts on. Are you happy about something? And he looked down and says, well, gay doesn't mean happy. It means homosexual. And I said, well, what is that on the back? Fine with me. Are, are you gay? Oh, no, I'm not gay. I'm just saying that I have tolerance. Oh, so I see you're saying homosexual is fine with me. He said, yes, that's exactly what it means. And I said, thank you, but one thing before you leave. It seems like your T-shirt begs the question. It doesn't really matter what you think about it or what I think about it, but it's what Almighty God thinks about it. Am I correct in that? That guy couldn't get away from me fast enough. But you see the point. There's antagonism against the Lordship of Christ. There's a third reason for the raging emptiness that we find in our culture today. We have a fatal attraction to lawlessness. Look at the text. Let us throw off their chains. Let us burst their bonds asunder. One of the great philosophers of the Western world in the past 500 years was the Frenchman Rousseau. He's famous for saying this, Man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains. And he saw the chains that shackled us were the chains of religion, the chains of the church of Jesus Christ. Throw off God, he said. You have a right to do as you please. And to live as a noble savage without religion. Now, not many people take the time to find out what happened to Rousseau. He left Paris and divorced his wife and immigrated to Tahiti, where he lived a very licentious life with all the women there. He painted his self-portrait. Many of you have seen it. He's painted himself like Satan himself. But what not many people know is that he died an awfully disgusting, difficult death of venereal disease, noble savage. Yet look at the ads in our culture today and how they promote the Rousseau lifestyle. Have you ever heard this one? No rules, just right. That's Outback Steakhouse. Or how about this ad for the Range Rover? 
no boundaries. Do you see how to sell American public things? We say there are no rules. Have it your way. Now, life on your own terms. Now think about it for a moment. Three minutes should teach you that that's not living. What if, I almost said Greenville, where am I? Wilmington. What if Wilmington dispensed with her traffic laws? And you could go home and drive as you please. Some of you said, I'm going to stop at nothing. Others of you said, well, I'm going to stop on green, but I'm going to go on yellow, and I'm not sure what I'll do yet on red. And others said, well, um, I'm going to take right turns on red and even left turns on red if I choose to. And there are no traffic laws. People would get along fine until they got to the first major intersection somewhere near College Road. And there would be wrecks and bleeding bodies and tempers would flare. And there would be cars overheated and broken and mangled. The police couldn't keep up with it all. And after two weeks of living without traffic laws, of living with anarchy as noble savages behind the wheel, people would be fighting to get out of Wilmington, not to get into the city. What the Bible is saying here is there's the raging of the earth and the empty clutter of empty lifestyles because we have a fatal attraction to lawlessness. Now, so far, the psalmist gives a quick evaluation of life as we know it here in the 21st century. The nations are raging. There's a lot of empty confusion among people. And there are three reasons for this. Leadership against God, antagonism to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and a fatal attraction to lawlessness. Now, thank God for what happens in the next few verses. The psalmist looks away from the earth and our sinful rebellion, and he looks into heaven, and he switches from the earthly scene to the heavenly scene, and he sees God sitting on the throne, laughing, speaking, proactively choosing a king, shedding his wrath abroad against sin, in full control of the universe in which we live. Next time you're in Washington, D.C., notice some of the statuary. Do you know what's looking south, leaning into the wind on a horse from our nation's capital? Ulysses S. Grant. An incredible statue as he looks south, leaning into the, the fierce hurricane of the Civil War. And what's he facing on the other side of the mall? Quite a distance away, you have the Lincoln Memorial. What's Mr. Lincoln doing? He's seated on a throne with his back to his enemy, the South. And in one hand, he's drumming with his fingers relaxedly on the throne. With the other one, he makes a fist of war. And if you look at him from one side, he's smiling whimsically. You look at Mr. Lincoln from the other side, he has a rock-ribbed jaw and is set to win this war and put an end to slavery. I don't care which side you're on in the Civil War, but you see some of the same thing in Psalm 2. The Lord, in this raging world of people antagonistic against his law, is seated on his throne. Now, what does the text say about all this? Well, number one, he recognizes God's superiority over all the kings of the earth. I have set my king, Messiah, the anointed one, on my holy hill. He will break the nations with a rod of iron like you do clay pots. His will is sovereign, unchallenged, fixed. Nothing hinders his will. A second thing he sees is God's sense of humor. Did you know that God has a sense of humor? I can prove it to you. He made you, didn't he? 
But here's one of the places that tells us that the Lord laughs. He has a sense of humor. It's been years ago when my children were all preschool kids. I don't know what they did. I think it had something to do with color crayons drawing on the wall. And the mother corrected them, and she looked at them, and she said, Just wait till your father gets home. Well, I don't know any of this is going on, but I come home, and I'm driving up the driveway, and my children have used their toys to barricade the driveway. We can't let Dad get home. There'll be judgment, wrath that falls upon us. As soon as I saw it, I laughed to myself and said, What have those kids done now? And the Bible is saying that God laughs when we try to barricade Him from His rightful authority in the universe. Nothing stops God. He's the surest fact of the universe. One of the things I believe Psalm 2 is telling our culture today, listen to this with both ears, we should take God seriously and laugh at ourselves. But in our culture today, we take ourselves seriously and we laugh at God. There's going to be a real role reversal of that someday. There's a third thing he sees when he looks away into heaven. He sees the word of God spoken. He said, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. These are words from the text. God's not amused at man's audacity. He speaks, and he speaks in wrath. And there's no question what he's saying. Do you remember that um, insurance investment commercial that was prolific a decade or so ago when E.F. Hutton speaks? People listen. It ought to be like that in our culture. When God speaks, people listen. There's a fourth thing the psalm writer sees as he looks into heaven, that God's word is not only spoken, but it's settled and sure. He's not asking our opinion. He's not asking what we think ought to be done. He says in the text, I have set my king on Zion, and he will rule. Who is this king that's chosen by God to rule the earth. It's the anointed one, which literally translates, he's the Christ, he's Messiah. We need to be reminded that all rules here on earth are temporary. NATO, the Constitution, the Camp David Accords, the Reagan administration, the Clinton administration, the Bush administrations, OPEC, all of these are impermanent. There's only one king eternal. And it's Jesus Christ, and he will rule the nations like a potentate rules pots with a rod of iron. Now, there's a fifth thing he sees as he looks into heaven that's really comforting to me. He sees God's Christ as the one true king. Let me just read what it says about Jesus in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. As for me, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. We see this happening in our culture. You know Six Flags over Georgia, the amusement park? Why is it called that? Because there have been six political schemes that have ruled over the piece of real estate we call Georgia. France, then Spain, Great Britain, the Confederacy, the state of Georgia, and now the United States. But there's another flag at least that will fly over that piece of real estate, the flag of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
Jesus never goes away. His flag is never left unfurled. He's above election, appointed by God. He can't be killed. The cross proves that. He's unconquerable by sin and Satan. And he's so powerful that he dashes the kingdoms that won't bow to him like clay pots. Just look at what the text says he does. He's chosen by God. He rules. He destroys pretenders and all bow to him. It is sure, psalmist is saying here, of the ultimate and universal reign of Jesus Christ in our universe. There's a symbol of this in Philadelphia. You know what the highest point in Philadelphia is? It's the statue of William Penn atop the state house. William Penn, the Christian Quaker who started Penn's Wood. They passed a rule, none higher than this. William Penn is the great hero. And in the universe, there's none higher than Jesus Christ. Now, so far, the psalmist has done three things. He recognizes the world situation with the nations raging and individuals in confusion. He recognizes the causes, our propensity for lawlessness, our antagonism towards God and Christ. And he recognizes the divine sovereignty of the King Jesus over all the affairs of man. So what's all this got to do with being happy? Look at verse 10. Now, therefore. And remember, I used to teach some of you that are old enough to remember when I lived here. What is the therefore, therefore? Now, therefore. It's a call to productive ministry. Look at verses 10 and 11, and it tells us what we should be doing. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Now this description description of effective ministry begins by warning people. The text says, be warned therefore, O rulers of the earth. This person came up to me recently and said, Stephen, I'm having a really tough time witnessing. And I said, well, how so? Well, I go up to people and I invite them to church and they say they have other plans. I try to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. They say, you know, my wife's looking good. She's lost 20 pounds and my kids are behaving well. My stocks look like they're turning nicely. Uh, well, what do I need God for? And I'm having trouble witnessing to people like that. And I said, well, you're using the wrong technique. And they said, well, what's a better technique? And I said, try this. Go up to people and say two things. There is a God, and you're not him. And let that be the basis of how you begin to witness with these people. Now, therefore, O kings, be warned. Now, notice the second thing he says. He tries to get people to serve God with their mind. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, serving the Lord with your mental capacity. One of my divinity professors used to put it well. You should never be afraid to read a book. For in so doing, there will be more of you to love the Lord. You expand your mind. You expand your ability to know and to love the Lord. He goes on down and says that we need to teach people to serve the Lord with their will. Serve the Lord with fear. That is awe or reverence. And then finally, he talks about serving the Lord with our emotion. Kiss the sun is a very emotional response to the Lord in worship. You can break this down how? This is the Shema, or the great commandment, expressed in the end of Psalm 2. 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your emotion, with all your soul, your willpower, and with all the mind, that is the intellect, and to love your neighbor whom you warn against the coming judgment as you love yourself. Now, the last verse brings us full circle back to the first word in Psalm 1. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. There's that word again, happy, the state of utmost bliss. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The word refuge in Hebrew means a safe place, a defendable and secure place. Now, I have a confession to make as I teach through Psalm 2 this morning. I'm really teaching myself. As a student of history, I get frightened with I see of what's coming upon the world. Is this any kind of world to leave our grandsons, our granddaughters? Look, look at the world, nuclear proliferation, genocide, the Islamic war that's probably going to last over a hundred years. And once or twice a year, I have a hard time getting out of bed. Just fear and foreboding of what's coming upon the world it gets inside of me, and I, I just get so pessimistic. And so I flee to Psalm 2, and I'm looking for that place of refuge. Explain to me, Lord, why the world is like it is, that you indeed are in control, and there's some meaningful act of ministry I can do as a protest, perhaps to make the world better or to slow it down in its careening towards evil. Now, I think what Psalm 2 teaches me is to avoid two extremes. Do you remember the poem, Two men looked out through prison bars, one saw mud, the other saw stars. And I think what Psalm 2 is teaching me is to avoid the extremes of pessimism or starry-eyed optimism. Let me explain what I mean. Some people see the world through muddy-eyed pessimism. Oh, woe is the world. It's going to the dogs. It's too late. We can't make anything good happen. We just need to sit back and barricade ourselves and turn the church into a stained glass foxhole. Nothing to be done. Yet we also need to avoid the starry-eyed optimism. What a work is man. We can fix this. We can make it better. We just need a little more time. We've got to get the right people in Washington, the right people in Raleigh, We've got to get the right people in office in, in the mayorship here in the city. And we can fix this. We can make it better. The balance, I think, is what you find in St. Augustine's old work, City of God. If you read that, you basically come to the end and realize that Augustine couldn't be more pessimistic as he looked at the total depravity of people. But he couldn't be more optimistic of what God was able to do through Jesus Christ. Here we are, up to our armpits in involvement. We're deep in the mud of a sinful world, teaching our children, our grandchildren. We're working on home and church and civic duties and foreign policies. But we're looking toward the stars for the return of Jesus Christ and hopefully a great revival that will send before his coming. Now, what's the conclusion of all this? Very simply, since Jesus Christ is the only sovereign king of the universe, and he will break all pretenders with a rod of iron like clay pots. That means he can't leave anybody out, including you and me. And that means we bow the knee without antagonism to his rulership. We turn away from our bent to lawlessness. 
we find refuge in faith in Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Perhaps there's one of you this morning that would bow the knee to the Lord. Where you sit, just simply say, Lord, I need your forgiveness. I have been such a fool. My empty vanities and my raging are of naught. And I'm weary with them, Lord, and I know they displease you. And so I come and stack arms and I bow the knee before you, Lord. Forgive my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Rule my life. And teach me, Lord, to be a warning to others. To kiss you. To serve you with fear. To be wise and warned. To serve you with all my heart and mind and soul and strength. And Lord, in this troubled world, let us give the hope of the sure answer of Jesus Christ to those that are desperately depressed around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.